Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. The best thing that we can do as individuals is to watch out for the other people in our lives and help them out because often it takes someone on the outside of ourselves who we love and trust to pull us aside and go, hey, I don't think you're okay right now. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with the click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. And let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have Tammy Chang, who's a board certified physician in pediatric hematology and oncology. Ooh. You know, like the gravity of that hit me when I said it out loud, and we're going to talk about stress and burnout. That could be a sad profession. And the author of the book, Boundaries as a Woman Physician, the key to loving your life and career in medicine, which Lord, could we just like, have you put this on Audible yet, Tammy? It is. 
Oh, good, it just good. came out on Audible, actually, like awesome. last week. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And the co-author of How to Thrive as a Woman Physician, which was in the past, The Boundaries as a Woman Physician was 2021, I think, launch. I think I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just careful from the last year. Cool. So Boundaries as a Woman Physician focuses on the understanding that to heal and to serve others, one must first focus on having a healthy body, spirit, and mind. Tammy highlights the importance of good self-care habits and boundaries in a physician's life to avoid burnout, stress, and exhaustion. She shares her own debilitating burnout story and that of three other physicians acknowledging her struggles and the way she broke the barrier of shame many physicians have when it comes to mental health and self-care. Welcome, Tammy or Dr. Chang. How would you like me to refer to you today? Tammy, Tammy. Good. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I was briefly visiting with you off air. And I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons, so when this pitch, I get like a lot of terrible pitches into my inbox, but I was like, well, this is such a timely pitch. And I think wherever we can have conversations to problem solve in this area is important. So to set the stage a little bit on the thought process here, and I know you have some stats to drop. Okay. Health professional burnout's like at an all-time high over the last couple of years, yet in a way, like there is a large percentage of people in general that feel burned out by work and et cetera. And so I think that what we're talking about today probably covers the gamut regardless of whether you're in healthcare or whatever. But a lot of people listening to this just happen to be very health savvy or maybe in healthcare, or maybe they're hoping to get out of it because they don't feel fulfilled or whatever. So I'm just thrilled to talk about problem solving and all the options today. But first, to set the stage, let's talk about your story because that's always kind of like, that is truly why people do what they do, right? And so why don't you start by telling, set the stage for me, please, and tell me about this awful burnout story that kind of like changed the trajectory of your life, the pain that changed everything for you. Oh, you bet. I mean, I think a lot of us are in, who are in this space have our own burnout story. It's why we're so passionate about it. It either burns us out and we quit or we do something to move forward and hopefully make things better for others, right? So I am PT mock doc, five years out of training, I hit rock bottom, severe burnout, severe depression, and then was suicidal. So this is all stuff we don't talk about in medicine or as a physician, definitely. And uh, really needed time off, needed a lot of help, had a took leave of absence, considered quitting medicine, not unlike many others who find themselves in this space. And this had been my dream, right, since I was a kid to become a doctor, and yet was not okay. And everything about my life has come out of that time. So everything I'm involved with today, creating today, these books and the platforms I run and all these other things are really about how do we make this better for all of us in healthcare today, and then also us for, for future generations to come. When did you hit that rock bottom? And what do you think contributed to that? And I mean, again, you're in this hematology oncology space in pediatrics, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to a friend earlier today and she was telling me about her. She says, oh, I like my endocrinologist, but I prefer my daughter's endocrinologist because, you know, those pediatric (laughs) doctors, they're just so fun. And so that's like what is in the front of my brain today because I had that conversation this morning before talking to a pediatric MD now. However, and they do, I mean, Pete's hospitals do so much to be so cool <laughs> for peds. Like they have life therapists and all these things. I like, wish I was a pediatric patient. Yeah, <laughs> right. But we're, right. Not, we're both grownups now, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like, can we actually just have that in the adult hospital? That would be fun. Can we actually have some Barbies to play with to distract I us think from? we'd do better from, if we did. Yeah, right. <laughs> but tell me what can kind of contributed to that, do you think in retrospect, or do you try not to look at it like that? 
Oh, I completely look at it like that. <laughs> I look at everything that led to it and what can we learn from it? So that's actually partly why I wrote this book, The Boundaries Book, because a large part of it was that I had no boundaries and didn't understand what they were until it was really too late. Mm. And it was a combination of short staffing, right? So my colleagues were out sick. They had family emergencies. Colleague's daughter was dying. Another colleague got cancer. We had record numbers of patients, new diagnoses at the same time, relapses and deaths of our own patients. There were many other members of our team who were going through chemotherapy themselves. It was too much trauma all at once. Mm. And it's so funny because it really was only four years ago, but I think I've learned so much right in those four years since then. And I was young and leadership was a new thing for me as a new young attending physician, five years out of training, took it all on and didn't know how to say no or to stop because that's we're trained to just keep going, put our head down and just keep pushing through it. And really at a certain point, it really isn't possible to keep going. I haven't particularly, I have been watching a family member go through med school recently, and I'm not under the impression that there's any like good boundaries or it just like, it looks like a disaster. It looks like, oh, that looks exhausting. Like, and I think about my own daughter who wants to go to med school and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just like reserving any judgment and opinions about anything. Like, I think it's amazing. Yet I have concerns about literally this outcome, right? Like destroying yes. your own health in essence for someone else's. And, and it doesn't actually matter what provider. I think it's really important to talk about doctors here today because so often, and this happens to some extent on this podcast, not majorly, but like from a, even a, in a one-on-one client relationship with the clients I see, it's easy for people to complain about. I think we like to, we're a blame culture and we like to blame problems on something. And so we're like, well, my doctor's not listening or my doctor's not doing this. And I'm like, well, you know, thing, I know we were just talking about this a little bit briefly off the record, but I think this system's not really set up to help you in this holistic way to educate you all day. And I was having, again, the same conversation with a friend this morning about like, if someone has to see 5, 10, 15, 20 clients per day or patients per day, and they're expected to show up like you're the only person and you're trying to educate them from the beginning. I mean, it's just like, that's actually, it doesn't feel very sustainable or practical or well, they, possible. Yeah. I mean, I think what patients don't understand is that the average physician sees 25 to 30 a day. Mm. You get 10 to 15 minutes per patient. <laughs> and believe me, it is not for a lack of the physician or the provider. We're not just talking about the physicians today, but it's not for a lack of that physician wanting to spend more time with the patient. Oh, yeah. Believe me, that's why we went into medicine. But unfortunately, yeah. that's the reality of healthcare today. And I think actually the more that the general public understands that, yeah, hopefully they can be a little bit more understanding because it's, it's a complex problem that I honestly believe doesn't serve anyone. You oh, know? totally. We, ultimately, we want the best care for our patients. And I think the nice thing about a podcast is it allows us to talk about things, not in a snippet that can get misunderstood, but I do want to talk a little bit about the personal responsibility part of this. So if the current situation is like, yeah, sure, there's a massive, gigantic problem here, but what is something we can do today to improve it? My thought process is like, if a client comes and brings this bullet point history or like clearly documents things like nicely... I think like, I just tell people like when you show up to your provider, you're going to be the star of the day probably. And they're going to be able to help you more efficiently and more quickly because they're seeing it all in front of them. They put it together very quickly. Like they have the knowledge. They just don't maybe have the time to collect 10, 5, 20, 30 years of history or whatever this complex medical history is that you're trying to put together type situation. Like we just discussed, the math doesn't really add up. And I mean, and I'm sorry that it is 25, there's 30 people. Because even when I see eight to 10 people a day, 
and dump in like a lot of time into each one. I'm like, Ooh, that was real exhausting by the end of the day. Right. You know? And so you're doing that times three at shorter intervals, but I say every tab you open for somebody like takes a new set of energy. Right. So anyway, I think my first question would be, I know we want to talk about the practitioners, but if we want to convey that understanding, like, Hey, this provider is seeing like 25 and 30 people, and they would rather not be seeing them like that. How can we show up to actually get better care as clients? Would you say? Well, I appreciate you also sharing, just bringing all the information you can with you. Right. I honestly think that even just showing up with the understanding that there really only is 10 to 15 minutes allotted per patient. Right. And that there's going to be a limit to what that provider is going to be able to do for you that day. And understand that it may take several visits to figure out what's going on. And it's probably not going to get all figured out for you in that first one. So I think it's just maybe coming in with a set of expectations that it's not probably going to get all figured out right away. Mm -hmm. And it might take some time. Mm -hmm. So I think we could go a lot of directions. And actually, I do want to talk a little bit about where this problem. Did you start writing this book before the pandemic, I assume? It's actually uh, during pandemic. Okay. Got it. Well, that was fast turnaround, which is awesome. So I want to talk about like kind of where we are currently, because this is where we are. It's like, here's this dang thing we've been writing for more than two years. I sometimes have to like, look and say like, really? We've been writing this for more than two years? Like, what are we even doing? What are the current stats? I know we were just trying to talk about them a little bit offline. And like, the thing is, is people like to make these speculations, like something needs to change and it's changing regardless of whether we like it or not. But I don't know, the solutions are challenging, right? So let's talk about like how severe the issues are currently. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about like some problem solving stuff. And then let's actually turn it inward toward what we can all do personally for like burnout and all those things. Because that's, yeah. I think like we can look at the bigger picture, but at the end of the day, like we're all a piece of the bigger picture. So if we mm-hmm. worry about our own piece, that's probably the best thing. All we can, we can do control most. is ourselves, right? Yeah, and exactly. We can't control anyone else, but we can control how we show up and how we contribute. Right? Yeah. So what is the gravity of healthcare burnout like in the current stats that you know? Yeah, I can talk about healthcare. Thank you for not asking all of society because I'll definitely get, get it wrong. Yeah, but yeah, I can yeah. talk about healthcare. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, 76% of physicians are reporting symptoms of burnout. So that could be mild, moderate, or severe. And for nurses, that's even higher, 86%. And we're estimated, the U.S. Labor Bureau is estimating a 1.5 million nursing shortage by the end of 2022. And we only have 4 million registered nurses in the United States. So know that that's a quarter of our nurses. We're also estimated to have 140,000 physician shortage by 2033. But that was a pre-pandemic estimate. So it's probably higher. We don't have any updated estimates yet. Mm -hmm. And we have about close to about a million physicians in the United States. So it's not looking good when you talk about literally being able to deliver just basic care Mm -hmm. and being able to continue as healthcare organizations across the country and provide even the basic level of care, like you actually need staff, right. To do this work and to do it well and safely. Mm -hmm. Kind of give a little story. There was, I think it was pre pandemic. I had created this like month long class and it was about adrenal stuff. And (laughs) because to me, Adrenals are a big part of burnout, right? They're producing cortisol and DHEA and hormones that are very helpful for making us feel stable and have good energy, et cetera. And there are people make comments that like most disease comes from some sort of stress 
as a domino first. And I certainly see that. I, I've never seen the exception mm-hmm. with an autoimmune diagnosis where that wasn't the case. But sometimes when clients complain about this, because people feel really terrible, but mm-hmm. adrenal issues and burnout doesn't, the biochemical markers for it are not amazing mm-hmm. um, unless you're like real shot. Uh, and actually, I would like to talk to you about your opinions about biochemical markers as well. Let's make sure we cover that. Um, but I often say to clients, I'm like, you know, your provider is probably also burned out actually. So it's kind of hard for them to help you if they haven't helped them. I mean, I'm just like saying with those stats, if three fourths of the healthcare force in general is reporting symptoms of burnout, then that's pretty safe to say your provider is probably a bit burned out. I'm sorry. You know, so it's hard for them to help you with your burnout when everyone's just trying to survive. Do you want to hear the scary stats about being medical errors? So when you have a burned out provider and that's whether it's a physician or nurse, you're at two times higher risk of experiencing a medical error. Mm -hmm. And there's a really high correlation between burnout from the healthcare workforce and medical error. So uh, not a good thing. None of us want to have a burned out provider because Mm -hmm. you're not going to get as good care. Yeah. Reality at the end of the day, it's not, and it's not as safe. And another thing I've had conversations with people about is that we have this luxury in our family where I'm my own kind of medical provider, right? I'm a dietitian. And then my sister and my sister-in-law are both nurses. And my Mm -hmm. mother had autoimmune crisis, uh, March of 2020, unrelated to COVID, but unfortunately due to COVID, she like almost died because like, you know, they were waiting on a COVID test for days. Yeah. You couldn't get care, even though the hospital was empty because they're like afraid of what's going to happen. And if my RN sister-in-law hadn't had an an hour long conversation with the emergency room doc on like potential options to get her on a ventilator, which uh, no COVID here, right. She had a myasthenia gravis um, systemic Mm -hmm. crisis. If she hadn't done that at 11 PM at night, she wouldn't have made it through the night probably. Right. And so you always have to be such a, I think like in general, in our lives though, we have to be good advocates, right? Like you just have to be good advocates. We can't blame, but unfortunately, if you don't have any familiarity with like how things work in medicine, you know, it can be kind of hard sometimes, right. To navigate Absolutely. through those potential errors. Oh, completely. Yeah. Okay. So actually biochemical markers, conventional biochemical markers for burnout. How are we categorizing, diagnosing? We're just starting to recognize burnout as an issue. And I'd be curious, you know, since you literally just wrote a book about this, what are our markers for this? And then what's kind of like on the standard of care for burnout? Is there, there probably isn't one yet, but it's probably one yet. And actually I don't know the answer about biochemical markers because I don't know any research yet in that area, although I'm sure there is some. So it's all subjective right now. Well, it's, there's actually standardized questionnaires. Okay. So yeah. the, the gold standard is the, the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which was actually from Christina Maslach's work back in 1982. Will you spell that? M-A-S-L-A-C-H. Yeah, she's, he is the grandmother of occupational burnout, so, <laughs> psychologist and researcher. So we've actually known about burnout since the 1980s, and yeah. it is categorized by the WHO classification of diseases as of 2019, so just before the pandemic, a syndrome of occupational stress that has not been well managed. Well, do you have that questionnaire or any signs and symptoms that we could talk about? Because my biggest concern with people is like, you can't do anything that you aren't recognizing. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the challenge is continually recognizing because you can say, oh, I'm stressed, but whatever, (laughs) you know? So if you don't realize some of the things and how they're hitting your nervous system, or you Mm -hmm. don't realize, like sometimes the one sign or symptom will resonate with one person and different things will resonate with someone else. And I think that's from a biochemical standpoint, when we look at like 
how the adrenals are performing or how cortisol is performing and whatnot. We're just really not there on getting a good readout before it's like you are real broken. (laughs) That's my professional opinion that I see in, Mm -hmm. but anyway, back to these questionnaires and like, what are some of the signs and symptoms from that perspective that could be red flags for people? Yeah, it's a triad. So there are three main signs and symptoms. The first one is emotional exhaustion. So that can be emotional, physical, or mental exhaustion, just feeling wiped out, right? Mm-hmm. The next component is uh, is essentially depersonalization. That's how it's described. So it can manifest as cynicism. It can manifest as compassion fatigue. And this is huge in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. It is. And then the third component is a lack of accomplishment. So that's where the I think we talked about purpose. There's that lack of meaning, that lack of purpose, feeling like, what's the point? Why am I doing this work? What's the point of all this? Mm-hmm. There's no meaning. And that's the third component. So it's a triad of all three. And you actually have to technically have all three to have quote unquote burnout, but there are of course many different skills and levels of of each leading up to this. So that's the original uh, burnout inventory. There's actually four validated questionnaires that are used, at least in the healthcare space. And so they're thankfully getting easier and easier to use, but that's the original one from the 1980s. That's helpful. I think the issue is, and I know we're kind of toggling between talking about things as a patient and then things as a provider, which really, you know, know, everyone is a patient. I think we're also, the thing is that I I also view it as, even if we are providers, we're also patients. Exactly. Exactly. We're all patients. Right. (laughs) It's all everybody. (laughs) Right. It is everybody. So then we'll we'll think about it with that context a little Mm -hmm. bit with like a healthcare lens on it, but everyone, this applies to everyone. So... I wonder how often, and this is like maybe rhetorical, I wonder how often this is even being looked at in clinic. Now you hit your burnout space and you're working with teeds. So maybe that's a little bit different, but like if you would speak to colleagues about it, like how often or how often do you think this is even being assessed yet? And when do you, when do you think this is actually going to hit an office for assessment and we're actually going to have like things we can do about it? What? Like for patients, you mean, or for yeah, for patients since we're all patients. Yeah, we are a long ways away from that. Yeah, we're a couple of decades, aren't we? Organization. Well, maybe, maybe a decade. I think maybe this COVID thing has accelerated everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only silver lining, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Other exactly. silver linings, but I exactly. heard, you know, this is one silver lining. We're like talking over Zoom today, and it's just like you know, like it's normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. But but yeah, I mean, when we talk about the healthcare organization space that is starting to be integrated. And that's viewed as one of the first requirements, like one of the foundational pieces. So I'm in my day life, I'm also a medical director of of provider wellness for my large healthcare system. So I I do this every day and I get to help build out programs and assessments for all of our, we have 5,000. So 5,000 providers. And so what we're trying to do is implement the Mayo Wellbeing Index, which is very easy to use. And it's a monthly self-assessment. What's it called? The Mayo Wellbeing Index. Oh, okay. Mayo, like yeah. the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic. Yeah, it used Thank to be used to be owned by Mayo Clinic, but not anymore. It was originally developed by Mayo Clinic, but okay. now it's uh, separate from Mayo Clinic. So the Mayo Wellbeing Index is like a questionnaire that's meant to be done monthly by, by every providers. Okay. Yeah. And healthcare workers. So there's actually different versions for each type of healthcare worker. So okay. physicians, advanced practice providers, so NPs and PAs. There's another version for nurses. There's another version for just general employees trainees, residents, and then dentists. So, okay. so within the healthcare space, thankfully, mm-hmm. we're starting to do that. I have yet to see that happen yet in other organizations. Well, it's a good place to start. Start with the it, provider, right? In yeah. order, if they aren't having the experience, how could they? I think like that's the actual thing. And I think this is 
from a perspective of as someone in private practice and as colleagues in private practice and people out as I interview people with their mission and their purpose in life, mm-hmm. it's through their pains and their own experiences that they form how they even act. And so I always like tell that to clients as well, who feel like they're not being heard by a provider. I'm like, well, your provider hasn't had that experience as you. They haven't had the same lived and shared experience. So they can't understand it quite the same that you personally can, that particular thing, right? Fortunately, not everyone's had every disease and condition and all of those things. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of recognizing that. So starting with a provider sounds good. So they do this monthly. We don't have to talk about the questions on that. What happens after they do the questionnaire? Like this questionnaire is done. And then what? They get a score. So they're shown the data, how they rank compared to the national average of their subgroup. So if it's a physician against physicians, nurse practitioners against nurse practitioners, and uh, and also how they're doing within their organization if they're part of a large institutional organization. So you actually see the national data, which is actually, to me, it's all about, if we're going to do any surveys, it better be data-driven. I'm all about evidence-based data-driven if we can. And so then it just becomes a really helpful point of awareness because we know at least for physicians, if they score a three or higher, and there's only nine questions, and it doesn't take a lot to get a three on these questions, then they're two times higher risk of medical error. I mean, they're multiple times higher risk of poor quality of life, suicidal ideation, all these bad things, right? Um, depression, anxiety, et cetera. So there's a lot of statistics that are, are correlated with the score. And that's a really important wake-up call for a lot of people. So that's a starting point, awareness, which I always feel like awareness mm-hmm. is a starting point. And maybe we're not at a place where like a lot of action is coming from that yet. And I don't know how long you've been doing this work overall, or you've been doing this. So okay. So these, these places do this mm-hmm. questionnaire, they get the score. And then what happens if they're above a three? They just get yeah. knowledge of it. They're like, oh, thanks for telling me I'm already burned out. Is that how it goes so far? Oh. Or is there like <laughs> things? Because you know what sounds nice, Tammy, is for this person to go on sabbatical or to go into nature. I mean, to be truly honest, like such dramatic things come from little things like that. But mm-hmm. when you're living in a national shortage, that's a fat chance that's going to happen. Just it's throwing that out there. Come by. Yeah. 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 So what's important to do, especially the larger your organization is you've got to have stuff that's automatic, right? Mm-hmm. And that someone doesn't have to check manually because it just won't get done. Mm-hmm. So there have to be systems in place. So pretty much anyone who gets a three or higher, which is considered high distress, gets an automatic trigger to essentially reach out to us for help. And I that's usually me. So I'm also an internal coach for my organization. And so I meet with a lot of physicians and APPs. And I coach them personally. We also have a whole peer support system program that's developed. We have counsel, internal counseling that's developed. We have external counseling that we, we support them through. So we have this whole network of support nice. that we then try to break it down. And sometimes that might mean, and I've worked with many providers on this, and I get it from a personal level, this was me not that long ago. I help them navigate how to take a leave of absence. Sometimes they're really scared to talk to their supervisor or medical director or, or manager. And then I help facilitate that. Mm, so nice. it's, it's all about to me, well, this is one step of this is still reactive, but my ultimate goal is for us to be proactive, right? So if yeah. we can avoid and pro- prevent some of these downstream, really severe things from happening. That's the whole goal and point of all of this work. Well, I have a couple of questions. One, this one, I'm going to start with a shorter one. So if, if like someone's listening to this and they work in healthcare mm-hmm. management, how could they become part of this network? that you're a part of that helps assess the practitioners and then provides resources? Like, is that something that some healthcare system can join easily? 
Yeah, there's a whole movement nationally. And I actually think the best resource, well, one resource, there's many great resources, depending on where you're at in your healthcare organization. The U.S. Surgeon General actually just came out with a huge advisory statement on health worker burnout a couple of weeks ago. And so that's a really useful and practical and helpful, essentially outlines everything each part of society can do to help prevent worker burnout within healthcare. So that's a really great resource. It's a 75 page PDF document. So don't be overwhelmed, <laughs> but he, cause he actually breaks it down in a very organized way. There's some, all the data is in there. I just think it's so well done. Like I've spent the last couple of years just reading everything right about, I can about this whole, this whole space. And so it's, it's so well done. I wish this existed two years ago when I was like first trying to understand this whole space. And then another really great tool, if you manage or over oversee a lot of physicians is the AMA American Medical Association toolkit for organizational joy. And what they're trying to do is bring back joy to medicine. They actually have some really great resources. They literally have a roadmap of what to do to create well-being programs and how to, like it's evidence-based, how to prevent burnout in your physician workforce. Mm -hmm. And there's specifically a roadmap called the Joy in Medicine Recognition Program. So I highly recommend just Googling that if you are involved with physicians, because all the data is right there and then what to do and what to start with. Okay. So you've been doing this work for a year. Will you tell us some success stories that you've seen so far? Oh, I think that in general, everything takes time. So I have to tell you that the biggest work that I'm involved in is changing the culture of medicine locally within my organization, and then also really nationally. So I don't know if we touched on this earlier, but I I think one of the biggest issues we have in healthcare in particular is it's absolutely a culture of silence, of silent suffering, of sucking it up. I think we were talking about sucking it up earlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's not one where it's not asking for and receiving help is not perceived as strength at all. It's absolutely perceived as weakness. There's significant stigma about mental illness or physicians and particular, there's concerns that if you admit to mental illness, that it could literally affect your credentialing and licensure to practice medicine, because there are questions in a lot of organizations and still in some state licensure bodies that you have to to disclose sensitive information, like if you've ever had a substance abuse disorder or struggled with mental illness. There are so many factors that are obstructing people even getting help. Yeah. So to me, it's going to take years and potentially decades to really see a real difference. But the big one to me is that even in the year that I've been doing this work actively within my organization, I've seen a huge shift already in our culture. And, and that includes the number of people reaching out to get help, even directly to me, even if they don't talk to anybody else, they're at least comfortable talking to me. Right. And I feel like that to me is a huge shift because that means they're reaching out. To me, that's a big deal that people are even reaching out, period. Is that how you measure? Is that one of the markers or metrics or how do you know that there's a huge shift in the culture? Like what else do you see? So you see this large number of people reaching out for help, which is a huge Mm -hmm. dramatic change because before it was, I don't know what the word was, but I'll just use criticized or like not. It still is. (laughs) Right. It still is. It's going to be a slow change. Mm -hmm. So it's the kind of work where I know we're not going to see immediate Mm -hmm. dividends. Right. But what we can do over time is then measure is our what is our retention rate overall? What is our actual burnout rate through the male well-being index? Mm-hmm. How long are our providers staying with us? Right. And then how are they how are they scoring on their own well-being index indices mm-hmm. month to month? So those are indirect, those are direct things and indirect things that we can measure, but it's not going to be something that we'll see a huge change within a year. Mm-hmm. And since you do 
like group sessions and sometimes just talking those things out and going through coaching around those things can be, I know for me doing coaching over the last six months has been the most dramatic thing I've done for my nervous system, but using very clear processes. It's actually so something I'm working on is like, how do I tangibly talk about this? Cause it feels a little bit like non-tangible to discuss. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot different than therapy. It's like, it's just taking a situation and an emotional thing around something and like breaking it out and making it more objective. If that makes sense. It doesn't make sense until you experience it. Right. But Mm -hmm. since you're doing these like monthly sessions, sometimes with different providers, and I'm guessing what you're saying is part of the shift that you see is like through some of those sessions, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you see like just more joy or people reporting like better outcomes or feeling better or feeling different emotionally through participating in some of those support network options. Yeah, I think so. We don't systematically measure someone before and after because sometimes I only meet with a provider once or twice. It's it's spot coaching. And, but sometimes that's all they really need to get going and do better. Mm-hmm. So we can see objective things. We have seen, I've probably coached, I've coached, coached dozens and dozens and because I do a lot of one-on-one and some group stuff, but I've coached dozens since I started this role. And I would say the vast majority really are, I mean, they're doing so much better and all it took was like a session or two. So mm-hmm. a lot, right? right? These are overall very high functioning individuals who just need a little, they often just right. need permission to think right. about something a certain way or to do something in a certain way that they didn't yeah. think allowed, right? Based on their, yeah. or their background. I actually think that was a really great way to say something I was struggling to say a moment ago is like, Sometimes when you verbalize a thing and you think you're the only one dealing with that, it's just permission to think about it a different way. Or like, do you have to think about it that particular way? And that can really shift your overall outlook for the end. It can remove the thing taking up rent-free space in your head that's distracting you from and contributing to the overall burnout. So I think now we should focus on, so we know that this is there's big gravity here. You've told us about like some of the things happening on the ground, which is nice to hear, right? Because Mm-hmm. I don't need sad stories all day long necessarily about like what a problem it is. I like solutions, right? So let's talk about what we can do individually to work on burnout. And I think like we've covered, I think questionnaire stuff around burnout and like, Hey, when people are seeing a billion people, is there anything else we should add to like what else is causing burnout before we go into solutions? Do you think? Well, it depends on the industry, but I think every industry has its thing, right? It's not unique to healthcare. Certainly, there are multiple factors that impact burnout on an organizational level in healthcare. So that U.S. Surgeon General big giant advisory thing actually lays it out so well. It's not just the organizational stuff, like the culture impacts it, the leadership and the values impacts it, the, like the actual resources and job demands themselves, the hours impacts it, the ability to have autonomy and flexibility and work-life flexibility impacts it? Is it a supportive community? Do people have friendships and feel supported and part of a Mm. a, social network at work? These are all different factors that impact and drive burnout versus engagement. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Culture, leadership, values, resources, job demands, work-life flexibility, supportive community friendships. And those are hard things to for an organization to sometimes to cultivate in a culture, especially in a larger organization, right? Intentional. That's at the end of the day, a business and mm-hmm. people want it to feel, I mean, it, but it has a lot of emotional elements to it, right? It's not an ice cream shop. Well, I think we all know that uh, if you have happier, healthier workers, you're going to have a more productive business, even if just looking at it from a pure business standpoint. Sure. I like that. So, I like that perspective. That's cool. Um, yeah. We got to take care of our, our own workers. Right. Yeah. I like that concept. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk about what 
we can do. I know we've talked about talking about it a little bit abstractly, but from a on the ground, I'm a listener. I'm experiencing burnout. What can I do today and next week and next month? I just think the very first thing is to reach out to someone close to you who you trust and confide in them and to share how you're feeling what's going on. Chances are that friend or even family member or colleague may also be feeling that way too. And to start there and explain what's going on and then really pause. I think it begins with pausing and what I think is really helpful for that friend or someone trustworthy that you really can confide in is then to navigate, all right, what needs to change so that you can be okay. And if it's work-related, which is where most burnout comes from, then we need to change something about the work. So like you said before, it might be a leave of absence. It might be a break. It might be a change in work schedule, et cetera. And so then navigating that with your manager or supervisor or director, whoever you report to. And then the most important thing after all that stuff, in the midst of all that, really is just the basics of self-care, which are the first things to go when we're stressed and burnt out, right? So, I mean, super duper basic. We're talking sleep, exercise, food, <laughs> right? Avoiding risky substances, like trying to avoid alcohol and and tobacco and all these things that we know are not healthy for our bodies, when in, um, depending on the amount. And reducing our stress, right? So, what can we do to slow down and take care of our, our minds and bodies too as well? Because it's all combined, all integrated. And then also finding support with others because we're, we're social human beings. And one of the first things people, what we tend to do when we're so burnt out is to isolate ourselves. And that's actually one of the worst things we can do for ourselves. We are social beings and we need the support of other people. That speaks a lot to the last couple of years, right? One of the hardest things because it's we've been so isolated as a society. What would you say to the person that's like, well, that's nice, but I have 25 clients to see today and you don't know how I feel or blah, blah, blah. What would you say to that person? That's like, mm-hmm. you know, your everyday person, <laughs> right? Well, I would say most people usually give a fair amount of pushback, <laughs> right? But I, what I would say too, then is what would happen if you kept going the way you are? Mm. If you kept feeling this way and pushed it to the side and just kept pushing, pushing, pushing forward, think, think two to four months down the line, two years from down the line. Can you imagine continuing to live this way five years from now? And that might be too far, too long, far in the distance for other people. But what I, I try to do then is help them understand if you keep living and breathing <laughs> this way, what's really going to happen in a couple of years? Can you keep doing this for that long? Mm-hmm. You have to stop somewhere. And for a lot of people, it takes hitting absolute rock bottom and having a wake-up call and almost driving your car off a cliff, right? That was what it was. Because until then, I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't I don't have time to not work right now. Like, it's not even an option. I, I, think, that's, even I think that's the toxic place that's the most challenging right there, what mm-hmm. you described. Yeah. Which, if someone had told you, well, Tammy, you just need these basics <laughs> when you were in that place, you know, would that have hit home? Or the way you just described that is that, you know, I think asking a powerful question, and I think that's a coaching strategy. It's like ask a powerful question mm-hmm. and it like just allows someone to answer their own question a little bit mm-hmm. because we're in, we're either going to be inspired or we're either going, we change by, I say this a lot on the podcast, inspiration or desperation. Right. And mm-hmm. so the powerful question can be inspiration before desperation, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Like what would happen if you keep going the same way? Right. Cause desperation is the rock bottom. Right. It's like, I actually don't have any other place to go. <laughs> kind of a life or death situation. That's a desperation point where it's like, what do I do first? And actually in your case, 
what did happen first for you? What had to happen when you hit rock bottom out of curiosity, if you're willing to share that? Oh, yeah. I almost drove my car off a cliff driving home from work one day and thankfully didn't. So it, it took me to hit. And thankfully, I recognized that that was bad. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> right. But it, it took until I really had that strong inclination to do that. Mm-hmm. Then that I had to You're like, maybe I'm not fine, actually. Maybe I'm not okay. Oh, rocket. You know, at the time, though, that's how warped we are, right? We're not mm-hmm. thinking straight. I haven't yeah, slept exactly. in like months, right? So you're not thinking straight, acting straight. Very difficult. And that's why if there's a question of feeling fried or burnt out, often ourselves, we struggle to see it in ourselves, but I bet you anything, our loved ones and friends see it or sense it. Oh, and yeah. so that's why I think the best thing that we can do as individuals is to to watch out for the other people in our lives and help them out. Because often it takes someone on the outside of ourselves who we love and trust to pull us aside and go, hey, I don't think you're okay right now. What can we do? What Which is kind of hard if you know, a lot of people are struggling with that, you know, to be honest. And I am the person a lot of people confide in. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get to experience this in conversation quite a bit. And you're right. Like the pushback piece and the realization is big for me. And so it's just Mm -hmm. like, what is going to resonate with this person at this time? And how you treat the people closest to you is a really good sign of like what your current stress level is at this current moment. And that was a, that was a big slap in my face. That's why it's like a really easy one to be aware of. And Mm -hmm. I will just like, if I wanted to underline something that you said, I think, I think the main thing, I think that like if we could summarize it in one small snippet of what can I do right now, it is to stop and pause and assess because when we're so busyness is like the, how we continue to feed this toxic cycle. It's like, Oh, well, I don't really even have time to do that. Cause I like have to get up and see 25 more people tomorrow. So I'm just going to like do everything mm-hmm. that I can and like just crash. And then I'm going to get up and do it again tomorrow. And then I'm just going to crash and do it again tomorrow. And so if we are forced to stop, and I think this is uncomfortable first, because if you've been in a go, 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 stopping to sit, and we have so many options to fill our brains mm-hmm. and so many stimuli that it's, it's really easy to like, it's, it's a dopamine hit and it's a, like, it's a toxic addiction of craving react. Like I want to like react to like everything coming at me. Like Oh, I'm going to handle you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to take care of these 12 notifications that came up by my phone. And I'm going to deal with this phone call from blah, blah, blah. It's very reactionary. And so when we stop and assess and we pause, first, it's very uncomfortable. I actually have found that it seems sometimes it takes like if I've gotten into too much of a reactionary state, I need to go offline for like a while. The handy, and I know this is a bit big, but it works really well. Like if you go somewhere out of service for a little while, like you don't really have right? a choice. That's the, only, time, the only way we're able to stop sometimes. Well, <laughs> right. Cause and I've done it. I actually had this um, happen. Like I took some kids on a trip and so I wasn't out of phone service, but I just, it was like, I'm hard stopping notifications, deleting apps, et cetera, mm-hmm. from work because I just didn't have time to reply to them. I, I knew I didn't in advance. Mm-hmm. And so that doing that for a week allowed me to make the shift when I came back to stop checking those notifications. And it happened to me last year, going to Yellowstone and being out of service for a week and coming back and be like, yeah, that was kind of nice not replying to all of those. Right. And so mm-hmm. sometimes you have to, like, those are more extreme examples of how sometimes it takes something like that, or some kind of like just being able to stop and sit in silence and peace and observing how you feel and how uncomfortable that is. That's like step one. And then from there, my other favorite exercise is like just writing out like what is causing a lot of stress in my life right now and what is bringing me a lot of joy. And then looking at both sides of the list and being like, hmm, 
what what I could get rid of on this side, right? Mm-hmm. And we can be creative around that one. It's a very simple exercise that like mm-hmm. like that is on the tails of neuroplasticity because anything you get out of your brain and onto paper can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a really useful. So anyway, in one sentence, it is stopping, as you said, assessing, pausing. I always think that's like the first step of everything. Mm-hmm. And assessment comes in a lot of forms, questionnaires, mm-hmm. the pause, the am I reacting or am I being proactive? And then from there, you can decide how proactive you want to be on all those things. And I think assessment is how you decide like, oh, I'm out of control right now. And we tend to do that. We tend to like slip out of control sometimes because old habits die hard. <laughs> it we're takes a bit human. to create new ones. Yeah. We're all human. Yeah. You can't be angry at yourself for being a human being, no. right? We just try to be better. Okay. That was kind of my like place to leave someone with that I feel like is like mm-hmm. working well. If you want to, as someone who's been working in this space for the last year and very passionate about it, mm-hmm. if someone was dealing with burnout, a health providers dealing with burnout and listening to this podcast and wants something they can do today, what's your advice to them, Tammy? I would do exactly what you just said, which was that stop and pause and assess mm-hmm. yourself. Like right now, there's a reason why you're listening to this podcast, right? And looking for something and some guidance. So stop there and really pause. I think a really important question is, what would your life look like two years from now if you kept going the way you are? Mm-hmm. Is that something you want? Yeah. So great. It's a powerful question, right? Mm-hmm. It's a powerful question. It's only a good one to ask ourselves. That's the only, and you're the only one who can answer that. None of yeah. us can say anything. Yeah. The answer is within you, technically. We look for outside validation a lot, but the answer is... It's always inside. Inside. Yeah. And there's so many solutions. That's actually the purpose of this podcast is like, there's a lot of solutions, actually. You have a lot of options. You're not like optionless. You're Mm -hmm. not optionless ever. And I think I always want that to come off. I want that to feel like a happy, exciting thing and not like an overwhelming, scary thing. I will mention that as well. Absolutely. Tammy, where can people find you online? Oh, uh, www.tammychang. It's T-A-M-M-I-E, Chang, C-H-A-N-G.com. And I also have another platform for women physicians, www.pinkcoatmd.com. Awesome. Pinko MD and Tammy IE Chang, which I think I had that spelled wrong. Thank you oh, so much. It's a nickname technically. So, you know, ah. it doesn't really matter, but it does matter for the URL. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. If you type it in there, you won't find it. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Boundaries mm-hmm. as a woman physician now on Audible. Thanks thank for coming for on today. me today. Thank you. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.